Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 313, Should Games Make You Feel Bad? Presented by Tam Miang, Doug Lewandowski, Roberta Taylor, and Jessica Crean. Hey everyone, uh, welcome to uh, Metatopia panel, uh, where we're going to be talking about games and specifically, should games make you feel bad? Uh, my name is Tam and um, I'm a game designer. I've been designing board games since I was 10. And I, uh, I do software and technology professionally. And uh, later in my life, I got into educational gaming. So I'm coming to this from an educational um, game perspective. Um, and uh, I want to talk with, about this topic with my panelists here. Um, and um, if the panelists will introduce themselves, that'll be awesome, starting with Doug. Cool. Uh, thanks, Tam. I am Doug Lewandowski. I am a freelance game designer, uh, both tabletop card games and RPGs. Uh, recently, I've done Kids on Brooms, Kids on Bikes, Aunt Agatha's Attic, and the forthcoming spell. No, now it's called Duel of Wands. That's right. Um, and uh, I am also, uh, in my day job, a high school English teacher. Um, but I do not design educational games, which Tam and I have talked about a couple times. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, how about we kick it over to Jessica? Hey folks, my name is Jessica Crean, and I run a small game and immersive design studio called I Can't Go On Games and Immersive. And I also teach game design at Drexel University and CUNY City Tech. So very much in the education about games as well as serious and impact games. So most of our work is about taking really complex subject matter and making it playful, which does not always feel good. Play is uh, play is one thing, fun, enjoy, <laughs> very different. And. Um... The last panelist, uh, but not the least, is uh, Roberta. And if you're wondering why you cannot see Roberta and just a still image of her, it's because the video feed keeps crashing. So we decided to go with the still image. Um, but we don't know if it's actually Roberta or not. It might be the Android copy of, of Roberta. So well, maybe that's a game that we can determine. <laughs> yeah, good evening. Um... My name is Roberta Taylor, and um, I design um, mostly board games. And um, it started um, as a hobby, um, but I've been really, really interested in the intersection of um, games and big ideas. Um, and so the sort of subject that falls under like meaningful play or serious games, things like that. And so I've designed a number of games for different clients along those lines. Um, again, tackling those big serious topics in a in a manner that's impactful through through play. Um, so that's that's my perspective. Awesome. All right. Um, so 
as I was saying, uh, educational games came later in life for me, and uh, but I've played games all my life. And one of the earliest games that I played was Monopoly. And, uh, you know, everybody has, I'm sure, a love-hate relationship with Monopoly. Um, it is extremely popular. And I want to start with that as an example of a game that you certainly feel bad. Some people, most people, while playing Monopoly feel really bad. But is that really designed? Is that intentional or not? Um, and I'm sure Monopoly is very well known. So what, what do you guys think? Uh, Monopoly, just the word Monopoly makes me feel bad, for starters, uh, like right off the bat. But also just knowing the backstory of the game, uh, I can't help but sort of link those things in my mind. Uh, certainly playing Monopoly as a kid, I was like, what is this madness? And why am I no longer friends with my friends? We were friends two hours ago. We're not friends anymore. What happened? Monopoly happened. Uh, you got through a game in two hours? That's amazing. I'm pretty sure like six people rage quit. I mean, is that really getting through the game? Who knows? Uh, but also just the designer of Monopoly, you know, she started, she made this game, uh, Elizabeth Maggie made this game as uh, a game to combat monopolies, to teach people about what monopolies do to neighborhoods. And so it got totally co-opted by a man who uh, played the game in a parlor setting and was like, you know what, this could be mine. And he just turned it into the exact opposite game that it was supposed to be sold to Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers did end up buying it off of Lizzie Maggie also, but they told her that they were going to um, present the game exactly as she had designed it. They lied to her. And so she sold the rights for almost nothing. And then they turned around and made this other guy's version of the game. And he's the one who's credited for making it. So it just, uh, so the bad feelings I think are like there from, oh gosh, uh, someone please help me out with the dates, early 1900s, maybe even late 1800s, is that right? 1903 to be exact. 1903, yeah, there we go, yeah. So the bad feelings go way back on this. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of design, like, is that a design choice? Kind of. Parker Brothers made a choice. The designer, the second designer of the game made a choice to make players feel better about monopolies. And in mm. fact, like what that did in the time maybe was make people feel a little bit better about having some power and control where otherwise they didn't have power and control, but nowadays it makes everyone feel worse. So there's this time element that I find really interesting about the game, uh, that nowadays when people have learned the story, Monopoly starts feeling even worse than it already did, which was pretty hard to do in the first place. I'll stop talking for a while. Uh, Roberta, no, I knew some of the backstory, yeah, but uh, I didn't that, know all of it. That's fascinating. Yeah, thank you. That was uh, that was a really fascinating, and um, I've I've learned so much more about Monopoly than the, the blurb that I was reading. Uh, Roberta, uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, Monopoly? Mm -hmm. Do you do you do you think that um, the design goal was to make people feel bad and from the educational standpoint, do you think it, it achieved its goal about teaching about Monopoly? Um, it's hard to know what, what the design goals were, just being in such another time and stuff. Like you can see what the you know original designer was going for and, and whether or not that ended up. Um, as far as players coming away with that, I think that this is a, a thing that's been on my mind as I've been thinking about this, is that if you're designing a game for impact, for emotional impact, for hoping that the players walk away with something, 
I think that it's really important to consider the sort of post the conversation, the debrief. And if you don't have something to say, you feel really gross right now, let's talk about that. People just walk away with this vague sense of, well, that wasn't very nice without necessarily having picked up a share. So I think that, that of course, and I doubt that Weber's language or thinking around that available at the time, but I, I think that that part's missing to make it actually be impactful. And Doug, um, since you are a self-proclaimed cynic of educational games, what is your impression of Monopoly? Do you think it is an educational game? And uh, do you think it achieved any educational merit? So I've never played it in its original form. So it could work really well as an educational game in that form. I think in its current form, it's not. It feels good to win Monopoly, right? Um, it it makes the goal the thing that you're trying to teach people not to do. And I think there's some serious cognitive dissonance there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's sort of like trying to get players to take on the role of being in a satire, which I think satire is really, really tough and requires, I'll try not to get too English teacher on this, but um, it requires like a lot of very careful authorial choice. And I think when you're, playing games and your clear explicit goal is to crush your opponent. Um, there's, it's really hard to make that a learning experience where people come away thinking that this is what has just happened is bad if they win, right? Mm -hmm. There's the, the great line from 30 rock where Jack Donaghy comes over to see his girlfriend um, and says, uh, I know you're stuck here, but I brought dinner and Monopoly, so there's no reason we can't have a good time unless I lose. Um, <laughs> and so it feels bad to lose, but it feels good to win, right? right. Um, I consider myself a pretty good person, but I've convinced opponents in Monopoly to give me their favorite pen instead of going bankrupt. Um mm -hmm. And then afterwards felt bad and gave it back. But in the moment I was like, I'm yeah. Um, so no, I mean, as it stands, I don't think it's successful in a design to make us feel bad or to convey what it's trying to convey. It's almost that there's no repercussion to winning or winning. I mean, winning badly in the sense that you're not winning bad, but you know, you're doing so well that, other people are obviously miserable, but the game doesn't do anything about that. There's no repercussion to it, other than maybe the social, maybe the intention that you should feel bad because you're winning so much. But as Doug said, I don't think that's usually the case in a lot of Monopoly games. And I think what Roberta said was great about the lack of the debrief, right? That there isn't that time to say, here's what the goal was, here's what we were hoping you would take away from it. Um, talk about how it felt and having to hear, you know, if, if the four of us played Monopoly and you won, Tam, and you had to sit there and listen to us talk about how it felt to have to go around the board knowing that we were losing, knowing that there was realistically no way we could win, but we had to keep playing, that might help. But instead you just pack up the board and pull out a deck of cards and play Pinochle or whatever, right? So. Yeah, I think that works for the, um, 
Yeah, I think that that's that's true for the um, the person who the people who are losing the game. Also, a debrief would be really helpful because the way that the game is currently structured, it makes you feel bad for not being better at playing the system. And the person who plays the system the best is the one who wins. And you know, due to you know human biases, most humans have this bias that you know if I win, it's because I'm really good at this thing. If others win, circumstances were for them. That like luck was with them. The, you know, the wind was with them. And if we lose, it's like, oh, well, you know, the circumstances were against me personally, otherwise I would have won. And so, and the person who's winning, it's all luck-based. So there's this like weird tension between how am I doing as a player? Am I playing the system right? Should I be playing the system right? And in Monopoly, players who are losing end up feeling bad because they didn't play the system well. And I don't know that I really want people walking away from Monopoly thinking, really, the problem is me. I need to get better at playing the system. Like, that's not uh, that to me is like a bad feeling message. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of debrief, uh, games that are really good at debriefs are LOPs. And I know that um, a bunch of you are very familiar with LOPs. Uh, Roberta, you have done a lot of LOPs, right? Uh, no, I've I've done some role playing games um, and that have had extensive debrief, um, mm -hmm. but I've actually never had the privilege of playing a LARP. So. Mm -hmm. Are there any role-playing games um, that are really good at teaching, um, and but also uh, help you deal with difficult emotions? Well, so the the game that I played that I think had has a lot of relevance to this conversation. I, I haven't. Um, I'm very new to this. I played my first role-playing game at the first Metatopia I attended. Um, I think it was three years ago. So. Um, it's a new world, but I had um, the privilege of playtesting um, Rosenstrasse um, by um, Jessica Hammer and Mo Moira Turkington, I believe. Um, my apologies if I got the names wrong. And it, it's a game with some really, really heavy, heavy content. You're playing um, these families in, in Germany during the Second War, and you're playing people who may be Jewish, may not be Jewish, may not have known they were Jewish, maybe in mixed marriages, mm -hmm. and things happen. And it's a sensitively done game, but it's also almost impossible to play it without crying. Like, it's, it's just got so much um, emotion. And so with that, um, of course, there had to be built in this this really well done um, debrief and as well as checking in and whatever. But what, what that really did was part of the experience was processing what just happened. It wasn't an add on, it wasn't tacked on because I think even with something that's not quite necessarily that emotionally heavy um, and that sort of loaded historically, you still got, um, I think it shouldn't be an afterthought. I think when you're trying to convey a big idea, it makes sense to sort of think about how you're gonna how you're gonna help people process what just happened as you build that experience. Um, and that, I thought that they did a really good job with that particular one. And is the debrief part of the rules in the game, or is that something that people do? Uh, sorry, the, I missed the first half of that question. Oh, I, I was asking if the debrief uh, portion, is that part of the rule set of that game of how, how you actually play it? Or is that just something that people do naturally? 
No, it's com- it's built into the rules essentially. Like when the person who's running the game, that's a part of how how they do this. Um, it would have to be a decision on the part of the person running the game to ignore the direction of the writers to not do that. Um, and I can't imagine any player wanting to do that experience without that. Right. So yeah, it's just like, it's a part of it. Here's what you're going to do to set up. Here's what you're going to do. And here's what you're going to do at the end. And that's just, that's the game itself. Like it includes that. Uh, you were asking about LARPs, Tam? Yes. There's, I, I still remember the first the first LARP that I ever played. Uh, I played a pharmaceutical executive and we were tasked with figuring out how to, nope, that's not true. We were not tasked with this. I suggested this in character that we start marketing our product more to children and coming up with like just diabolical ways in which we could get our drugs into the bodies of kids. And it was uh, pretty stunning to me how naturally it came. I was like, oh, these bad ideas, I mean, these good bad ideas are just flowing straight out of me. There's never been an outlet for them before because I've never engaged this part of my brain before to really think evil. And that, it made me feel terrible. It made me feel terrible while playing the game. It made me feel terrible after playing the game. Even thinking about it now, I have this little twinge of like, oh, I'm capable of things. Mm And it feels bad to know that I'm capable of those things or how easily it came to me. And the debrief is really what helped settle me, um, knowing that everyone else in that space had also gone through a similar experience uh, or was able to speak to those effects. And I feel deeply, I feel deeply now like I am capable of evil and I actively choose it not to use that part of myself. And that feels good. So the game made me feel bad, but the effects of the game have made me feel empowered. And for those who are not familiar with LARPs, uh, LARPs are live action role-playing games. Uh, those are, well, maybe somebody can do a better description of what a LARP is, um, uh, since I've only done a couple in my, my life and they've all, all been really amazing. One was where, was where I was a Syrian refugee and the other where I was on a sh- uh, shipping trawler that was sinking and everybody's gonna die. Uh, so they're all, the ones that I've done are really tough subjects. Oh, um, so uh, another uh, notable game um, is um, is Train. Uh, that is by uh, Brenda Romero's Train. And um, if you're not familiar with the game, uh, the game it's a board game where you are. It's sort of like an efficiency game where you are moving little meeples in a train. Um, but maybe somebody is if somebody can um, tell a little bit more about the game. Sure. Uh, yeah. So there is this. Uh, there's a glass window pane that is laid out, and the game is placed on top of it. And so you can see that the game sort of looks unique, even just as you walk up to it. And there are these little little train tracks across the, the glass pane and also these little trains. And so you have to put these little meeples. I haven't actually played it. I'm just speaking from like having heard her, her talk about it. Um, but you have these meeples and you have to fit them inside the train. And they just, they're just like a little bit too big to fit easily. And so there's like a little bit of a struggle to get them in. And then it, you are engaged in these gameplay, the gameplay of trying to take the train further along the path all the way to its terminus. And when you reach the terminus, if you reach the terminus, uh, you realize where you have been 
bringing your little shoved in meeples. And they are all um, extermination camps, World War II extermination camps. And so it's really all about this idea of what do we do because we're not thinking deeply about the world. Um, and I don't think that it's, it's necessarily based on this, but I do a lot of uh, philosophy work. And so Hannah Arendt, who's a philosopher uh, around this time, she talks about banal evils. And how, how was it? She's really said she was a Jewish, a German Jewish philosopher. And so she was really looking at how is it possible that evil can happen in the world? And uh, she really chalked it up to these, what she called banal evils. It is everyday people uh, going about their jobs without necessarily questioning the things that are happening. And so I think about this a lot in the contemporary form, but this game is really touching on that. What are you not asking? And do people stop playing the game once they know what it is? To which the answer is for almost everyone, yes, they will stop. But they will also not tell anyone else what the gameplay is. They just wait for them to figure it out. So that's train. Yeah, and um, I love that explanation about the banal evil. I. I'm from Burma, and I grew up uh, in a time where there was a lot of civil unrest. And um, it's you, you get the sense that if everybody believes that they are good, uh, they want to do good, but it's really difficult to actually do something. Um, and I'm guilty of that myself. And I can, you know, games like that, but also life experiences also makes me realize that it's really difficult um, to do the right thing. Sometimes you don't know what, when, when is the right thing to do. Uh, when do you do the right thing? And uh, you know, maybe part of some of these games, are they educational? I don't know. Maybe they'll make you more self-aware uh, about who you are. What do you guys think? I mean, I certainly think that's a kind of education. I think one of the critiques I've heard about Train, and I've never played it myself to to know how it feels, and now I I couldn't because I know the I know the twist. But um, one of the critiques I've heard is the issue of consent in gaming. That where does the role of my choosing to buy into this come into play and how do we draw the value of the lesson that could be learned from it, which um, I'm sure is quite, quite powerful, but how do we balance that with exposing someone to something like that without any warning about it? Mm -hmm. Right. So in, <clears throat> in the role-playing space um, where things are, are more free and can go in more directions, safety mechanics are, are, are really, really important, right? Um, and content warnings about what might you see in this game. Um, uh, I just put out a journaling game um, where you have a, a mentor who has different priorities. And based on those priorities, there are questions that come up. And so before playing, we included a set of possible content warnings, right? Based on the the questions you may see. And I think those are probably more important um, just for for the player's safety and, and well-being. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I'm couching that by saying probably, you know, it depends on, on the impact. If there's a way after you play train to debrief and talk about that and think about how you can take this lesson forward and what, you know, an explanation from the creator, why it was important to do this, then that might be different. But if it's just like a, and based on what you're saying, it sounds like the intent was very much to educate and to get people to think about the banality of evil. Um, but I think there have to be things in place so that it doesn't feel like a, feel like a haha gotcha, even if it wasn't meant to be that. Right. If someone can walk away and feel like, well, I just had the rug pulled out from under me and this was, I was tricked into doing this thing. I think that, I think there's a real danger there. Yeah. I think there's something to being in a receptive state, right? And like we, when you're designing experiences, games or otherwise, like we want to make sure that the people who are utilizing that experience are ready for it. And so there's, you know, we usually do a certain amount of onboarding and a certain amount of offboarding if there is sensitive subject material, but it's all, it's all design work, right? Like we can set that up. And so, yeah, this question of consent, I mean, she, the designer of Train actually said, you know, someone walked up to the game and was like, oh, I see what this is. I don't want to play. And her response was, you already have. Mm -hmm. So there is so, something to just, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Roberta, um, do you have any thoughts on, uh, I really like that uh, thought of um, the consent part because that's something new to me in, in, in the terms of tabletop, you know, like strategy board games. There's no board game that come with uh, uh, consent warning label, or at least one that, any, one that I know of. Like I, I had a similar experience where <clears throat> I've been working on, I designed games, strategy games with, a little bit of evilness in it, I guess, or uh, questionable matter. Like uh, the last, one of my last games, is, it's Moon, where you are playing um, a Soviet bureaucrat and a uh, corrupt Soviet bureaucrat um, uh, from 1969. Uh, and after, during the middle of one, one play test, somebody had to stop because they were so triggered by having to do corrupt things uh, and it was he was coming from his own life ex experiences and he had to stop and and uh, this was the um, genesis of this panel discussion that it made me realize ah okay maybe people should be made aware of what this game is about what what do you think Roberta? i think there's a lot of content that really deserves that kind of thought and I, I think it's that whole deliberateness like as a designer everything you do is a choice right and I, I think it's our job to think those things through and to listen to our play testers and to do the to do the work so that you know you you can't know every single potential thing that could be difficult for somebody coming into a, a game experience but especially when you're dealing with with harder subject matter whether you're trying to deal with it either way or in a much more I want you to walk away and think about something new Think that that's really our job and it's lazy of us to just be like whatever people figure it out it's like now how do we make this to be you know and, and i think part of it is that respect for the player and that you know things like the consent and part of it is respect for the subject matter like if we're going to go to all this trouble well let's have the best 
impact that we can with that effort too. But yeah, that's why that's that's our job as far as I I'm, I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And I think the more games lean into having narrative and telling the story, the more important it is to have that, right? The so I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, well, so uh, one of my games, Aunt Agatha's Attic, is about cousins squabbling over stuff that their aunt is giving them. And I think that's important for people to know going in. That's that's right up front. So if somebody says, I was just in a really nasty dispute with my cousin, I'm out. Good, right? It's It's not like they do a bunch of setup and then it says, okay, now the fighting starts, right? Um, or um, spell duel, right? Just from the name, you know that you're going to be fighting people with spells. Yeah, right. And I, I think the more narrative we put into something, neither one of those is a particularly narrative game, but the more story we put into it, the more invested our players are going to be in the in that narrative and in that story, as opposed to just the mechanics, mm-hmm. the more important it is for us to warn them. Right. Yeah. And um, going back to the train, uh, Romero's train game, I think it would be pretty difficult to put a content label on it because part of it is that shock value. And I don't know that, what do, what do you think? Do you think it's valid to have these kinds of games or should it had some sort of content label. I think it's super valid. Um, I think it's tricky. I don't think there's a way to make it always work for everyone. But I think that that has to be the case sometimes. We are artists. We take the unknown into our hands every time we create something. We're always learning. It's always an experiment. And so... I think it's important to be able to support that. Otherwise, we don't grow. Um, Also, the world is full of surprise and uncertainty. If we weren't contending with that, what would we be doing? You know, also, the chance gets built into games all the time, you know, through role play, uh, like uh, dice rolling and all kinds of other stuff. So the idea that things are not that things will come at us that we don't expect is very deeply embedded within games. The idea that those things might be upsetting is a little bit less primed. But the truth is, that's changing nowadays too. You know, the more sort of the more games sort of make their way out of just high fantasy world and really into much more about like we have so many games now that touch on reality or touch on this kind of material. So part of it is really just like what is this conversation that we as designers are having with the public in general? How are we all getting largely educated about the kinds of things that we're going to be experiencing? So in some ways, we're just sort of setting up this little a little bit of a paradigm shift also for our players and. Uh, as Roberto was saying, like that's on us as designers to help shape that conversation and lead the way, and really be leaders in that space and say, okay, this game really does need some content warning. Um, or there's like a more subtle check-in, like, hey, if you're going through anything where you've been feeling emotionally up and down, you might just want to know that this game may do the same. Uh, I've done a lot of things in the world, so I design immersive experiences as well as tabletop games, mobile games, digital games, pretty medium agnostic over here. But the immersive theater in particular is tricky because you're bringing people physically into a space. And so there have to be rules that are set out for the protection of everyone involved. Um, and so I think that there are this balance between like 
when we give them information is interesting. How much do they need out of world before we even say, you know, welcome to this playful experience? Do they need to know things like don't touch anyone else in the space unless, you know, they consent in X, Y, and Z way? That's generally best done out of world because otherwise, if, you, if it's in world, then there are loopholes. Oh, my character doesn't abide by those, you know? So there are certain ways in which the, when, when is the information doled out? Can you actually get to the middle of the game and start seeding the possibility that things are going to get darker? I think yes. I think that that's absolutely possible. But it really comes down to the specific design and the care and do all of the players know and feel that they are in good hands. Mm -hmm. This is the designer who's been taking on a journey. And I trust this because I see that they are being thoughtful about all of these choices versus this feels like a totally badly chaotic experience in which I don't know what's going to happen and I fear for my safety. So I think there are just, it's about the ways in which we start opening people up through experiences. Mm -hmm. And I want to, maybe board games can start to have the kind of like the warning labels or age appropriate labels that movies and other media have. Uh, so moving on to another can, game. Can I just add one oh, thing yes. to that? Yes. I, I totally agree. Um, and I, I think the more that games move into the realm of being considered art, the more we expect art to surprise and upset and unsettle us, right? I, mm -hmm. I don't go into uh, a film expecting that I won't be troubled or moved, right? Um, but if I do, if I sit down for a game called, you know, like Jumping Pigs, I expect it to be fun and, and lighthearted. And so I think it's a, to some extent, a question of expectation, but I think there's also the sort of it's more than just expectation based on title. Um, I think it's expectation based on what you assume from the medium, if that makes sense. When, when I'm working on a, a, a meaningful game, I, I'm very, very aware of my, my intended audience. And I would hope that in any case, that would be fairly clear in the finished game of who is this game for? While that's not an explicit content warning, if it's marketed at grade four to seven students, I'm going to expect different content than something that's, that's clearly aimed at an adult audience. Um, and there's cues there and stuff, because I think that comes back to that. that expectations being appropriate at the, at the get-go. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, another game... Well, another couple of games that I want to talk about. Well, one of my favorite uh, is Imperial uh, by Marquette. Um, and uh, Imperial is very similar to a much older game called Diplomacy. Um, and um, I'm sure you've all heard of it. I don't know if you've played it. But Diplomacy, it takes like a day to play. And it's all about conquering the world, but you have to do it where you have to make alliances only to backstab, usually backstab them later uh, to be the ultimate winner. And after like 12 hours of play of this, I felt so drained and horrible 
of having to backstab people. That that's a game I actually don't want to play again because it left, left me with such a bad taste. Um, Pearl is something similar to that, but I, I personally I enjoy um, Imperial more. Um, there's not so much of that backstabbing. There there is still is, but um, you don't outright lie to people and do terrible things. What have have you? What what are your thoughts on uh, either of the games? I've played neither, so I don't. Oh, okay. I, don't yeah, I haven't so, either. I'm terrible at strategy uh-huh. games. I can strategize in life. <laughs> so, but the uh, the the underlying topic about having to lie in a game and and um, uh, and then be the ultimate winner. Use that leverage that you know. Games are supposed to create this safe space, I guess, or a magic circle. Uh, some people like to use it. Some, although, is there still a magic circle? I don't know. That's an um, ongoing debate. But um, as I see you shaking your head, Jessica, what? I just agree with you. Yeah. I think that uh, we play games because they affect our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still on the fence on, on that. I think some, you know, there's because we come from educational background and we play a game, we make games so that it affects our lives. So we are ultimately trying to break that magic circle. But a lot of people believe that there's this magic circle where what happens in the game stays in the game. And if the rule says it's okay to do something, it's fine. What's your thought on that? I haven't played those games because, well, firstly, I don't own a poker face, um, so I would be horrible at them. But I also think it comes back to that thing of consent, where is this like, if I know up front, that's what this game is about. And that seems like something I would enjoy. That's very different. Whereas if I find myself in this position where, oh, I I have to to betray my teammates now in order to go on. If I didn't knowingly choose to have that type of experience, I'm just going to be really disappointed and upset because um that that's that's a that's a yucky feeling and and i'm i'm not interested in exploring that um as as uh and i think that that um for some people that sort of oh it's my mind against yours and we're gonna see who can do this the best they really enjoy that and they have the ability i think to kind of separate that from real life and for those folks maybe those are great um for myself, you know, I, I think I would just be miserable the whole time. And and so knowing ahead of time, oh, this is probably not an experience for me because there's no greater understanding that I think I can gain to help me in other parts of my life from that. Whereas maybe someone who's a diplomat might find just the idea of how do you talk to different people and different, maybe that's an abstract exercise they could learn from. I don't know. Um, you know, I can only speak for myself there. Well, and then games like, I mean, Among Us is one of the most popular games right now, right? Or, you know, Mafia, Werewolf, um, even Poker. Those are games all about lying to your friends, right? Um, Tam, you want to drop out. I'm holding three aces. (laughs) I mean, it's, that's the buy-in, right? Uh, Like like Rebecca was saying, it's all about the consent, right? When I sit down to play poker, I consent to being lied to in this game. Right. Um, 
often with the very real world stake of I'm going to lose money if I if you lie to me successfully, I'm going to walk away. I mean, I play very low stakes poker, five dollars poorer, right? If you totally wipe me out. Um, but I, I think it all comes back down to the expectation and what you've what you've bought in for. Um, I, I think that that's very true. But I think the difference between, say, poker and a game like diplomacy is games like a lot of strategy games. There's a lot of bluffing and um, hiding your actions. That is part of the game. But that is done through mechanics of the game rather than, say, uh, in diplomacy, what you're really having people do is, you know, it, it's more real to life because you're talking with people, you're, talk, you're, you're, you're getting them in a room discussing strategy, and you are actively trying to lead them astray, and uh, you know that you're going to have to take them down, uh, but you, you, you kind of have to you know, lie, them, lie to them straight to their face and uh, get them to trust you only to be dealt that blow later. So I think for me, that was the difference between uh, a game that, where lying is involved but more mechanical but diplomacy where it is more lifelike. There's a, there's a game that I, I played. I think, it's, I think it came out within this year. It's called Scapegoat. And it is a social deduction game to an extent. Uh, basically, like you are playing as this den of thieves and one person has to take the fall for the bank heist you just pulled. But because of the mechanics of the game are set up in a certain way, uh, everybody knows who the scapegoat will be. Everybody knows, hmm. except for the scapegoat. But the scapegoat knows who the scapegoat is. They're 100% sure who it is. It's just not them. So if six people are playing the game, five people know the correct answer, one person knows the false answer that they feel to be correct exactly the same as everybody else. So no one has to lie to each other, but it's the same feeling. Everyone is rooted in their own truth, knowing full well that they could be the one that's wrong. But they have nothing really to do but exist in this game as if they are correct. And so it breeds this crazy anxiety. Like, I, I'm like, well, the last time I played, people were like getting up off the table, like, just kind of like, is it me? Will someone please just tell me if it's me? Someone please tell me. But it was so delightful, too. Like, it was so, like, people were just like sweating. I was like getting up to like drink a glass of water because I was just dying on the inside. It didn't feel good. Like, anxiety doesn't feel good but at the same time it's compelling and so i think that's sort of like it's the the truth in this game and the lies in other games are this same sort of like world building experience of like what can i get away with in this world and so the desire to like push boundaries and stay in it is so strong that even if it feels bad our desire we have a desire for something else beyond that that is bigger than that which is the desire to win <laughs> So winning in our minds is so rooted to good feelings that it's hard to even separate those things. And I think that's really interesting. Like these moments when winning feels good, but we've done terrible things and felt terrible things to get there. Like that momentary switch is fascinating to me. Uh, Roberta, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, sorry, I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No worries. Uh, I want to, in the interest of time, I want to move on to a couple of other games. Um, one of them is Spirit Island. And uh, there are other games like that, like a CO2 is another game. Um, a Spirit Island by Eric Roos. Um, it's, it's a game, it's a strategy game where you are playing the spirits of the island and you are, your goal is to drive off the colonists uh, that are attacking that the island, so it's um it's a game with an ecological uh, bent to it. Uh, so is CO two, um, there and there are a bunch of other games which talk which talks about um, you know learning about the environment, um, but also making you aware um, of of. Um, maybe your role in ruining the environment. Um, any thoughts on, on those games or any games like that? Spirit Island is hands down my favorite co-op right now. Um, so yeah, what I love about that is, I, and it's interesting that it's in here for like a game that makes you feel bad because I, it, it makes me feel great. Um, but what's interesting about it to me is that it makes me feel bad about playing Settlers of Catan, right? So what I think is so cool about what Roos has done there is it it inverts our expectations of a different game. Um, and I think that's just such a cool move. Um, yeah. I love about Spirit Island is it's the least subtle thing I've ever seen. Like it's absolutely non-apologetic. The little colonist pieces are crappy plastic while everything else is beautiful wood. And it's just like, it's not hiding the fact that it wants you to think about this, but it also does it in such a way that you, you're like, I'm really glad I played that. That was a really interesting. And it does make, like you said, it's a great point to turn the other games on their head. And it really, your expectations of, so many board games or I'm going to come in here and I'm going to conquer this land and colonize it. And you're like, wait a minute, this is not what's going on here. Um, and, and I think in that sense, especially like the first time you play that game, it does have that element of surprise of, Oh, this is what's going on. And as you play through it, it kind of just keeps driving that point home. Um, and, and I do think that that's, that's really interesting. And it was clearly a lot of design choices went into making that, that experience work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Just drawing the distinction between the two also, it's just interesting thinking about how deeply in conversation all games really are, or a whole scene really is. Um, but also like winning, like winning generally, no matter what the win state is, it generally does feel good, but the learning happens when we lose, right? Unless you need to learn to be a more gracious winner, in which case I, I guess winning could be a learning moment. <laughs> yeah, we see you. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but for the most part, like that is for me, like that's the exciting space. So I am, I'm also interested in how we reframe loss, you know, as just this, this experience that is actually potentially much, much, much more deeply rewarding than winning and sets us up then this like whole world of possibility. Like that feels like such a win to me. And so how we frame the endings of games or even the importance of the end of the game versus the journey, all of that ties into how we ultimately feel about something and what feelings we're walking away with. And that can be, you know, very much in the design of the game. Like we have the power to shape that too. 
And speaking of loss, uh, another game, a game about loss is the Holding On. It's a co-op game uh, by Michael Fox and um, uh, Rory. Um, and uh, it's about death. So in the game, it's a co-op game, and you are you are basically going through the end-of-life experience of a, a, a bunch of patients at this hospital. And um, one of the things that you do in the game is that you uncover their memories of, of their life uh, as they are uh, going through the final days of their life. And it, it kind of, it, it's really poignant. It kind of reminds me of that, um, that little montage at, at the beginning of Up, which is one of my favorite 10-minute uh, sequence in all uh, type of media. But it's that the idea of building a life history of this character who is going to die. Um, any thoughts on games that deal with death or this particular game in general? What are the mechanics of holding on? Uh, the mechanics is, um, well, there are two, two mechanics, if I remember correctly. One is making sure that you are satisfying the needs of the patient. Uh, and you are kind of like the hospital administrator, and you have to make sure that um, you, you are staffing this hospital properly and going through uh, various crises. So that is one of the co-op mechanics, and you're working with other people um, who, uh, which over shared resources to, to manage the hospital. But the other mechanic is as you're doing that, you are uncovering um, the, the patient's life. And they come in these uh, cards that you can see in the photo. And um, it's kind of like a, a simple jigsaw puzzle. And they make a tapestry of their life uh, once the game is completed. So it, 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 it blends strategy, but it also has a very strong narrative feel to it. And it also dealing with, uh, you know, difficult uh, subjects. I mean, that sounds great. I would love to play that. Yeah, that's uh, by um, uh, Roy Corner. That's, uh, I think, uh, the, the company's Hub Games, and um, I had the chance of playing it um, recently, and that, that was really awesome. I think, I mean, it makes me think about just like games as training grounds, you know, games and experiences, uh, interactive experiences as training grounds. You know, this is a chance to test out something that you will maybe never experience in life or that you will experience at some point. You might want to be a little bit more prepared for it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that, you know, I think it's a, it's a select grouping of games that can do this, but I think it's really powerful and helpful in a lot of ways. But I also know myself well enough to know that I wouldn't necessarily sign up for it. Sometimes I actually really do need to be sort of tricked into contending with subject matter like that. So if the game was presented to me as such a thing as like, okay, yes, it's a game about death, but you're really going to love it because of these unique mechanics. I even, you know, even for someone who's 
deeply fascinating and invested in impact games, there are some things that I don't always want to play through unless I know there's going to be something else to hold on to. And so I think that that's why the design becomes really important is that there has to be a way for us to really make sense of the world and not just be lost in narrative grief the whole time. Um, and I've seen enough gameplay. I've actually have seen gameplay of holding on and thought it was beautiful and really beautifully done. And so I think finding those meaningful mechanics, those like metaphorical actions that I can take that will help ease me into understanding something better. That's what I really look for in, in a game that, that contends with death or something that I have personal experience with and need to guard myself a little bit on. Right. And um, so another thing that I want to throw out there is, um, and this is where I met Jessica as well, as uh, it's Games for Change, which is an annual event that happens in New York. Uh, and uh, we talk about games that are designed for social change. And there are digital games, board games, all sorts of games. And lately, uh, VR games. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in VR. Um, have have you guys tried VR, and what what are your thoughts on the impact of VR in terms of educational game and games that can drive emotion? I'm waiting for the technology to stop making me motion sick. <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten motion sick yet. Uh, I've definitely done some things that have made me think. Uh, it's rare that a VR experience makes me feel um, or to feel in a lasting way. I think I have a better visual memory of the experience than I do a lot of games, uh, even video games that I play. Like I have, there is definitely a sense of embodiment that I have uh, after experiencing them, but it's, the world feels so fabricated to me a lot of the time because the technology is still catching up. Um, to the kinds of stories that we can tell now. And so there are sometimes moments of transcendence, but I, I think they're out there. I just haven't played through them yet. So I'm really excited to see like, the uh, as more stories come into VR, how powerful they can be. There's a lot of 360 video stuff that I've seen that has been very powerful. There's also Tree, I guess. Tree comes to mind um, as a, a really impactful VR experience. And part of that is because it is uh, also a kinesthetic experience if it's you can play now at home on your home VR set and it just wouldn't you wouldn't have certain elements but if you play through tree in the right settings or in a public uh, where it's being publicly shown then you have this VR set on and you start out as a little seedling in the dirt and you grow up and become a full tree and you can move your hands like the branches move and so you're embodying this the existence of this tree and then uh, spoilers here um the there is a deforestation comes encroaching on your mm. section of the forest. And so at a certain point, you become disembodied. You, rem you are removed from the tree and just have to watch it burn. But up until that point, you are the tree. And so I think that's probably like the most powerful VR experience that, um, or one of, certainly one of the most powerful VR experiences that I've had. I'd say Queer Skins is another one. Um, yeah, so I think that like there's just figuring out simple ways in which to root people in space and have that be part of the storytelling is so, so promising. Um, and also takes good storytellers. I'm really excited to see more writers be moving into the VR space and to see more VR projects bring writers in so that the story and the tech can all evolve together so that those things can really be heightened. That's awesome. And I, I haven't tried uh, Tree yet, but I, I now want to try it. Thank you for that. 
So oh, I forgot to mention, sorry, yeah. I forgot to yeah. mention the live in person part is that like there's someone with like a, you know, a heating thing so you can feel the heat of the sun and they've got a fan so you can feel the wind. And um, so there's just like all of these tactile things to help enhance mm. the VR experience. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. When, when Games to Change happens again in real life, uh, I really hope they have, they have more really awesome VR games like that. So. Um, and um, so I'd like to just wrap up um, on this. This has been an excellent uh, panel discussion. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for you guys for being here. Now, if people want to find more about you and what you're working on, where, where can they reach you or find you? Roberta, do you want to um, start this off? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at InfiniteRoberta. Um, and I, that's probably the easiest place where I try to post some game stuff and, and talk about projects that I'm doing. Um, and, uh, right now I'm two weeks away from my first ever Kickstarter launch, um, of my game creature comfort. So I'm very excited and, um, yeah, so that's, that's where I would be. Doug? Yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my username there is Levzilla. Um, I'm also uh, just starting to put my stuff up on uh, itch.io um, or io. I don't know how people tend to pronounce that .io thing. But um, and uh, yeah, those are the the best places to find me. Um, and I'm you know tweeting about the stuff I'm working on and other things as well. So uh, you can also find me on Twitter and any other form of social media you like. Uh, Jessica Crean is my name and my company and handle for everything is I can't go on, which I will spell for you because it is a deep cut philosophy pun that I'm constantly apologizing for, but also I love it. So that's at I K A N T like Emmanuel Kant K O A N like Zen koans. Nice. And my name is Tam and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tam at play uh, and also on Facebook under my name. Uh, again, thank you, everyone, and thank you, Metatopia, for making this possible. And I hope to see you guys for some games and maybe in real life soon. Yes, thank you for Thanks, putting guys. it together, Tim. <laughs> <laughs>